Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 it's lifeline with craig roberts he's the host of northern california's longest running conservative talk show he's a man with a message a conservative with compassion he's lifeline's own craig roberts oh yes indeed it's all true Good to have you with us for this Tuesday edition of Lifeline, the 24th of November. We are just two days away from Thanksgiving. Ouch. Normally a time of year we all look forward to, right? This year a little bit, uh, well, a lot different for many of us. There will be empty seats at the table for many families. 250,000 Americans. Wow, wow, wow. So empty seats at the table, smaller tables, small gatherings. I, I'm trying to kind of put a bright spin on all of this, of not thinking about all the dishes <laughs> that will be waiting Thursday or Friday morning, rather. But uh, it is a it is a difficult and different season for us, to be sure. And so um, I hope whatever your plans are, that you enjoy and make the best of it and be thinking of those who are going without this year, both in terms of having lost family members and dealing with the fallout of the pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis that our nation has been facing, and uh, hope and pray for a much brighter 2021. Got a lot to break down today. We're going to get into uh, some important discussions related to education topic that um, every now and then sort of hits the radar screen, and we we typically do it when we have frustrations over how a child is performing or uh, we're shocked over the content of educational material that our student has brought home. Um, and most Americans um, perhaps have strong opinions about the state of public education in our country, and yet sadly, mostly kind of go about business as usual. We wanted to spend some time today talking about not just the history of publication, uh, public education, but most importantly, the broader vital topic of school choice. Now, longtime listeners are going to say, oh boy, there he goes again. He's back on his school choice soapbox. But, you know, ironically, when parents are empowered to be able to pick the best school for their child, and it can run the gambit. It, it might mean a public school. It might more than likely mean a private school or um, perhaps even a parent choosing to homeschool. And whatever sort of fits what's best for your family, in the end, we should always front and center have the best outcome for our children in mind. Sadly, though, in the current state of education in the United States, um, that happens more by accident than it does 
on purpose. Let's talk about public education as we're joined by author, commentator, and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today, Bob Zadek. The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here locally in the San Francisco Bay region, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, our sister station. And Robert, as always, a delight and an education to have you join us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Craig. It's always a pleasure to join you. This is a challenging topic to unpack because there are so many levels of misinformation out there, some of it being supported by, well, frankly, parents that just don't know any better, some of it being supported by unions that have a vested interest in sort of keeping things exactly as they are. But in the end, I think uh, most importantly, as I mentioned a moment ago, our dialogue needs to center around not what we've always done, so let's not change it, uh, not simply innovation for innovation's sake, but rather ultimately what is going to be the best outcome for our children. And um, one of the arguments, of course, goes that public education is kind of a flawed concept from the very get-go uh, because of some of the inherent, uh, shall we say, inequities that seem to sort of be built into the system. So let's just start, Bob, with first kind of your, your, your breaking down of this subject matter. When we talk about public versus private, what do you see as some of the pluses and minuses? Well, first of all, let's do a little vocabulary review, Craig. Uh, I prefer not to call what you refer to as public schools. I don't like that phrase. It is misleading. Now, let's call them what they are, government schools. So the, the comparison is between government schools and other. Other being the schools are run by, the teachers are hired by, uh, the rules are created by an entity other than government. So we have government schools and we have other other includes private schools, parochial schools, charter schools, all of the non-governmental schools. Now, the place, a convenient place to start is that if you think about education in America, it is the finances are bizarre. Why do I say bizarre? Because in general... Anybody functioning in a slightly free market society, and we have at least that, if not more than a slight free market society, is accustomed to having the person who is acquiring the good or the service, whatever it is, to decide which service is the best and to pay for it. And once they're paying for it, it's their money, and they decide how to best use their money. And that's the way we acquire everything. And people shop around or not, but in any event, they're spending their money. In the educational system, it is the only system, the only system where the money is given to the provider, not to the customer. And the, and the customer is told this commodity, in this case education, is free, free public schools. Of course it's not free. Of course the students' parents are paying, but they're paying indirectly through tax dollars. And the way to bring this point home 
is just imagine if food were sold the way education is sold. Craig, you would be assigned, based on your zip code, a government-run supermarket. And you would be told, whatever you want in the supermarket, it's free. Just go and take it. And you have to shop in that supermarket because you're in that supermarket's district. And you say, well, what if it's dirty and the people are unruly and the and the staff is impolite to me and the choice is not that great and the quality is terrible? Well, you say, well, you can go somewhere else and pay out of your own pocket, but still your tax dollars are supporting your neighborhood supermarket, which means you pay twice for food. Once you have to pay for the food that's junky uh, in, the, in the supermarket in your zip code, and the other for the food you really want to buy. Would anybody like that? That's public education. That's government schools, where the money is given to the seller, not to the buyer. It's insane. Now, I think government has an interest in having educated students, and it's appropriate for government to spend money to see to it students are educated. That makes sense to me. But the way to spend the money is give the money to the student's parents and say, here, you get $10,000 a year to spend on education. You get a voucher. It's good for 10 grand worth of education. Pick any school you want in the universe. The school has to be accredited, of course. It can't be a fake school, but you spend the money. Now, between that system and the system we have today, where the school has to convince the customer to spend their voucher at their school, that versus the system we have now, which do you think would produce better outcomes? There is a summary of public education in America. And clearly, as you've hinted, what will ultimately produce the better outcome is something that has been the driving force behind American commerce and American exceptionalism in relationship to, to business and innovation since the beginning, and that is creating an environment where the quality companies with quality products, quality service, they survive. The ones that produce not-so-good goods... Well, they end up going by the wayside, and so the risk and reward plays right into the notion of creating an environment which fosters competition that drives all of the competitors to work harder, do a better job. And what's ironic, Bob, is we've done that in every aspect of American life, but somehow when it comes to government education, we've just said, well... You're a victim of your zip code. Where you happen to live dictates, in many cases, where your child is able to go based on residential boundaries and and often uh, ability-based magnet schools. And so there you have it. And if you happen to be fortunate enough to live in in a zip code that has a quality local government school, bully for you. And if you don't, oh, well, we're awfully sorry. I have never understood why there is such fear of competition in education when we celebrate it in every other aspect of American life. And the strangest thing of all is the driving force in America and the driving force in the soon-to-be Biden administration is, of course, the teachers' union, 
who dreadfully fears competition. Now, what makes it so strange to me is if I were a, now in the teachers union, there is no merit pay. It's a union. Everybody makes the same depending upon years of service with slight modifications, which means everybody gets paid as if they are an average teacher. If I were an above average teacher, I'd be underpaid. And therefore, I would be screaming at the union to let there be competition because I want there to be competition for the job of being a teacher as well. So the system we have now favors mediocrity. Is there any surprise that the quality of education in the government schools is subpar? Of course there is not. It's just very simple supply and demand um, with, a, with a demand that is inelastic. The students have no choice, and therefore there is no incentive for teachers to be good, for administrators to be smart. There is no incentive whatever. Everybody responds to incentives. In education, we have written incentives out of the system. It makes no sense. It's bad for everybody except bad teachers. And sadly, that, that, lack of, uh, that lack of incentive, along with a lack of accountability and many of the protections that are built into mediocrity, um, also known as tenure. And, and again, I, I want to say up front, this is not meant to be a blanket accusation. I oftentimes get emails, Craig, you're just completely discounting all the hardworking teachers out there that sacrifice, put in long hours for little pay. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of highly qualified, caring, hardworking teachers that do a yeoman's job and are significantly underappreciated and even more so underpaid. That said, there are within your ranks numbers of individuals that don't care if they ever cared at all, that are protected by the unions and tenure, and are able to largely phone it in. Now, you want the evidence? Well, we'll talk about after the break things such as SAT scores or the differences in performance between a child who is either private, <coughs> pardon me, privately or homeschooled versus those that go through government schools and what the matriculation levels look like going on to two- and four-year colleges and universities. No child left behind, huh? Bob Zadek, author, commentator, and talk show host, continues our dialogue after this. traffic for you right now as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the um, wonderful things that Bob Zadek always brings us is some historical perspective and in many senses uh, an opportunity to sort of redirect uh, much erroneous thinking. Bob, by the way, who's a celebrated author, commentator, and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard Sunday mornings here in the San Francisco Bay region at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. You can get more information online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Lots of great resources available to you there, information about his books, copies of, of course, past shows, podcasts, things of that sort. So check him out. Check out the website, bobzadek.com. Bob, historically speaking, many people perhaps, and erroneously so, would think that, well, 
uh, public education or, or government education here in America. That's something that we've always provided. It's at the very foundation of our nation. But that, in fact, is not true, is it? It's not true at all, Craig. It's relatively new. Of course, a respect for education is as old as the country. Uh, Thomas Jefferson passionately supported public education, and he funded the first uh, public university in America, still running down in Virginia. And, of course, uh, Benjamin Franklin was a large supporter of public of government support for education. They knew that without an educated citizenry, a democracy couldn't possibly survive. So everybody favored public education in the sense that government ought to support education. It's only recently that government became the vendor, the supplier. So I agree that education is an important function for government to support, but they should support it with money, as I said, give the money to the students to make sure everybody has education without regard to what you can afford, but let the marketplace sort out the good educational systems from the bad. And by the way, if if the teachers union, if governments want to have educational systems, if they want to run a school, why who knows? But if they want to, they are free to compete with other schools. They, and, and in some areas, the public school, the government school, might be the best because they have high quality. Well, then people will use their vouchers for a government school. After all, I can deliver an overnight package with FedEx or I can deliver an overnight package with the post office. They compete with each other. And does anybody dispute that when FedEx was created and UPS followed them, that the service at the U.S. Postal Service became better because now they had to compete? Does anybody doubt that? Of course not. Competition is good for everybody. We live in a democracy. Well, we ought to have, we ought to be able to vote with our dollars, not just with our ballots. And voting with your dollars means you vote by how you spend based upon what is the best quality for the money. That's another form of democracy. So let democracy decide which are the schools that will survive and the schools that will fail. Well, you know, the other point here, too, and I want to have you touch on this before our time expires, but the the other important point is there's somehow this notion that we're talking about tax dollars, therefore it's quote-unquote government money, and so therefore exclusively should go to government schools, that somehow if it dare goes to a school that coincidentally also happens to be parochial or religious in nature, that somehow that component completely taints the entirety of the education, and therefore there's been for a long time this steadfast pressure against allowing things like vouchers, school choice, uh, even the notion of of so-called charter schools has been met with tremendous resistance, largely by the unions, uh, undoubtedly out of the fear of loss of control, but also the sense, I think, that, well, it's government money. But I think we need to be reminded that, no, it's not government money. It's our money. And I think that the problem here, Bob, is that when we encourage parents to make 
the right choice for their child, which might be, as you point out, a government school. It might be a private school, a parochial school. It might be even uh, going to a charter school or even homeschooling. It requires that parents pay twice for one education, publicly via the money that they're taxed, and then, of course, privately when they choose their own school. And there seems to be something not only inherently wrong with that, but quite frankly, uh, very anti-American to suggest somehow that government money can only support government schools when the government, at least in my view, doesn't have any money. It's all ours. Exactly right, Greg. You're exactly right. And um, focusing on the economics, we, everybody in, in America, anybody in any free market system abhors a monopoly. Monopoly is a somewhat evil word to people who pay attention to economics. We intuitively rail against monopolies, and yet here we are, we create, we create a monopoly in education by saying, if you live on this street, you must patronize, you must go to this school unless you want to pay twice. So why in the world would we want to create a monopoly? Remember my supermarket analogy. It's like you must shop in this supermarket even if the one next door is better. That every American has to react viscerally against compulsion. This is where you must shop, in this case, for education. No, I will shop for education where my child can be taught the best and I get the best bargain. What? Why do you not trust me, the parent, to pick the best educational system for my child? And when parents are given a choice, in New York City there is a voucher system now, although Biden has kind of declared war on the voucher system, but in New York City where there are vouchers, the demand for charter schools and private schools is so great, they have to have lotteries because they have to allocate who gets to go to the better charter schools with the vouchers. And parents who lose the lottery, they are, they are sobbing. Their children are sobbing. Why are they crying? Because now they must go to a government school. And they are sobbing in the assembly because they didn't get to go to a charter school. It is heartbreaking. Every tear that is shed is shed because of the power of the teachers' union. Every tear in that auditorium is caused by the teachers' union who rail against the competition. It's heartbreaking. Well, and sadly, you know, back to this point of, of the lack of competition, which therefore uh, really strangles uh, improvement and innovation within education, uh, and largely because it's become such big business here in California, 51 cents of every dollar goes to public education. If you think everything the state does, from health care to government services to utilities, paving roads, all of it, 51 cents out of every dollar goes to education, and yet we find when you look at a comparison of student performance, private and parochial versus public or government schools, children exceedingly demonstrate better degrees of competency in everything from SAT scores to just the percentile of children that complete their high school education and then matriculate to two- and four-year colleges and universities. At the end of the day, you know, we've often heard this argued that, well, 
parents have an opportunity. They can leave public education and take their child to a private school, but that's sort of like double taxation, as I recommended a moment ago. You can complain about it, but oftentimes that really doesn't get you anywhere. Or you can just be steadfastly loyal and hope for the very best outcome. But I think the danger there, Bob, is that we're, we're gambling with our child's future, aren't we? And if we gamble with our child's future, we gamble with the country's future. Because if our children are not participating citizens who are informed, they will vote uh, not in the best interest of the country, and the country in the long run will suffer. And there is one interesting, before we run out of time, there's an interesting economic uh, aspect of this I'd like to point out. Let us assume that California spends $15,000 per student in the public school. But under the voucher system, if a student leaves the public school, well, the public school is denied the $15,000 for that student, but the the student only gets a voucher for $10,000 because private schools can do it more efficiently. Therefore, every time a student is educated in a voucher or in a private school, the state saves $5,000. It doesn't pay $15,000 to the public school. It only pays $10,000 to the private school. So every student in private school lowers your tax dollars, Craig, and every one of our listeners. And at the end of the day, you know, that that's certainly important, but I think the bigger issue at hand here is the, the, the penultimate goal of making certain that we afford our children the best education possible so they have the best chance of success in life as possible. The thing I always remind people of is be mindful that the current generation that's in school right now Someday they will grow up to be the next series of leaders and presidents, during which time you'll be retired as an elderly person having to rely upon them. So what do you want running the country? Do you want a child that's educated, that understands history, that understands government, civics, economics, and can make the right choices that benefit and protect all of us? Or do you, as we saw in the recent election, want to elect a senator, I won't name who it is, but a senator-elect publicly stated in a discussion about the three branches of government that, well, of course, there are three. There's the executive branch, the House, and the Senate. <laughs> you got <wonder laughs> you to you wonder why it is that most United States citizens could not pass the United States Citizens Test to be a citizen of the country in which they were born. Criminal? You bet. More on this topic. You can go deeper. The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Complete details, resources, and more available at Bob's website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Thanks to Bob Zadek for enlightening us here on this edition of Lifeline. How about a little bit of illuminance on traffic? We shall do that right now, forthwith, post-haste. <laughs> we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, it's going to be a, a very muted Thanksgiving for many of us, this largely because 
A lot of Americans are doing their best to try and deal with the current pandemic and uh, all that it represents and the challenges that we're facing and trying to get a handle on this before the deployment of the vaccine. And the one thing that seems to have kind of marred and marked the way we have managed this pandemic from the beginning is one word, inconsistency. Inconsistency to enormous degrees out of Washington, D.C., inconsistencies at the state level, even here in our own fair state of California, which, given our size and population, has relatively fared better than many states. But on the inconsistent level, well, just look to our governor, who, on one hand, is telling people, stay at home, don't go to school, don't go to church, follow what I tell you, socially distant, don't gather with mixed families, that you don't have normal contact and exposure with. And then what does he do? He turns right around and contradicts his own advice, to which I would say, Mr. Governor, lead by example. Try it for a change. You might actually find it satisfying. Well, he's not the only one. Kentucky governor is now dealing with some challenges where, once again, inconsistency seems to be the hallmark of addressing the pandemic. Brad Dacus joins us now founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, uh, Counselor, this is once again another example where there is a strong push to try to get Kentuckians to protect themselves, all the while handing out directions and orders that seem to be completely disconnected one from another. It's almost as if this is all done piecemeal, moment by moment. Yeah, uh, this is really unfortunate, what's going on in Kentucky. And the uh, hats off to the... uh, Kentucky Attorney General uh, for uh, calling out the governor on this. Uh, the Attorney General has uh, filed a, a, a lawsuit along with, uh, with another organization uh, against the uh, g- governor, uh, Andy Bashar, um, asking the court to, to block the implementation of this executive order banning religious schools from holding um, any in-person, in-person learning. You know, first blush, people may think, you know, that, uh, well, you know, this, this is, you know, safety. we we got to, you know, take things, uh, you know, serious. And I, I agree, you got to take things seriously. But the problem is, uh, here, Craig, is that they're, they're still allowing movie theaters um, to open, um, you know, to have 25 people in them, but, but there's no, but the school's not allowed any kind of a way to accommodate. Um, they allow uh, gyms, workout facilities, uh, stores, they can all be open. Uh, but when it comes to kids in a, in a protected uh, Christian school, they're not, and uh, it's it's really uh, disheartening. Restaurants, bars, fitness centers, indoor recreation facilities, they can continue operating at limited capacity. But it comes to churches, or excuse me, it comes to uh, kids in private schools. Um, you know that's that's a, a real rub, and that's unfortunate because I believe it violates uh, the First Amendment uh, free exercise clause, as well as the uh, Kentucky. Uh, statute, uh, the Kentucky's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Is the governor there, in your opinion, Brad, uh, at least consistent on the point that the mandate here in terms of um, after once having transitioned back to in-person instruction, now moving back to so-called virtual instruction, is at least that consistent in terms of the mandate impacting both public schools as well as private and parochial schools? Uh, 
Yeah, that's and that's a really fair question to ask. Um, you know, because uh, at the end of the day, um, they need to treat uh, treat them fairly and equally. Um, at the very least, not treat the religious schools more harshly than that of the of the, the public schools. Um, but the, 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 the but the problem here is the fact that the the public schools are not protected by the First Amendment, and this school closure that he's issuing is prohibiting us specifically applying itself, um, targeting religious organizations, uh, and, and yet religious organizations have protection, um, like private Christian schools and religious schools have protection by the First Amendment that secular government schools don't have. Um, they're not religious institutions. There's no uh, free exercise of religion uh, you know, issues there. And so that's why the governor's actions need to be scrutinized much more closely with higher scrutiny afforded uh, by the Constitution. I guess the challenge here at many levels is, again, the inconsistency where uh, a, a gym under limited capacity or some kind of a public entertainment venue under limited capacity can still meet. And I understand that there's an attempt to try and not completely cripple what's left of the economy. Uh, and yet, in the same token, come back and say, but schools can't meet at all, or all have to be back to virtual education, which, as we know, is significantly less than ideal. I guess at the end of the day, the question comes down to what should the governor be doing in order to best protect people across the spectrum, while at the same token, not killing uh, capitalism and, and leaving some breath left inside of our economy, while at the same token, protecting children while protecting for First Amendment rights. I mean, it, it, it seems to be, uh, you know, sort of a, a big challenge to try and parse through all these details. Yeah, it is. And I think what well, the real rub comes from people when they see uh, stores open, restaurants with people, movie theaters with people, and then you have a, a different criteria being implemented when it comes to religious institutions in particular, like you know, churches and, re and religious schools. Um, and, and the interesting thing about schools in general is the fact that uh, they're the lowest risk. Uh, children actually under the age of 18 have a higher risk statistically of passing away from the flu, the regular flu, than the coronavirus. That's what's so ironic about this. Um, you know, people say, well, their parents though could get it. Well, their parents are also still in the under, under 50 relative safe zone. Um, you know, compared to those much older who have a much, much higher level. So it seems very arbitrary because they don't, they don't have these other places like sh stores, shops, restaurants. Um, those are much more likely to have people who are much higher at risk, and yet they have much looser um, criteria. And that's, that's the real, uh, real problem. I just also want to let you know, Craig, that we at Pacific Justice, um, in a matter of days, but probably in a matter of, of well, this of hours this week, we'll soon be filing um, a lawsuit, a very strong, powerful lawsuit that we are hoping to get to the uh, Supreme Court in a, in, a, in a very fast pace um, that will address these issues. And uh, we have a very strong case that I think, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, will prevail in and put a lot of this at, at rest for the rest of the country. And is that, uh, for a point of clarification, is that specifically speaking to Kentucky, or could it have implications here in our own state? Oh, it's, it's going to be dealing with California specifically, but its implications, uh, if, if we're successful in getting, having it move as fast as we want, 
uh, will uh, be impacting the rest of the country as well. People, I encourage them to be praying for Pacific Justice too right now. I would say, Craig, this, this lawsuit we're going to be filing is probably one of the most important for religious freedom uh, that I've seen uh, since I started practicing law almost 30 years ago. Wow. All right. Pretty uh, pretty lofty and uh, critical issues there in the balance. We'll uh, appreciate Brad Dick is continuing to keep us updated on uh, the uh, subject, and uh, no doubt once it hits, we'll be reading about it too. Brad Dacus, he is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Hey, when you're thinking about your your seasonal giving and uh, Tuesday is Giving Tuesday, uh, you might want to consider helping to support the good work of the Pacific Justice Institute. They provide their services pro bono uh, to the less educated crowd. That means for free to all that come and are looking for help. And so if uh, you've been in that category, you've been appreciated, uh, the work that Brad does on behalf of uh, the faith community, the broader degree, and would like to support what they do, you can check them out online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. An update, track. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back. And... Um, the, the election that seems to never end, actually making some progress. Um, I'm not speaking on the national level, but here in the state of California, as uh, some of the slow counting is being finalized, nothing, by the way, let's just put a point of clarification here, that will have any impact on the federal outcome. Uh, that ship, like it or not, has sailed. But statewide, we're seeing a number of areas where pro-life candidates are eking out wins, and this is certainly good news, as we've often said. Uh, you know, yesterday's member of the school board or city council could be the next individual representing the state of California to Washington, D.C. So these are often very critical, critical races, though locally we may not think of that at the time. Almost every one of these candidates that we see, yes, up to and including the president of the United States, in most cases— started out in politics at the local level. More on where things stand. Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters. Heard every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And uh, Brian, give us an update. Yes, Craig. Well, thanks. Yes, as we spoke about before the election, what we've seen is that if people get involved locally, and I, again, Harken back to the book of Nehemiah, where the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. And, of course, in those days, very often the houses were adjacent to the wall. And one of the things that Nehemiah instructed residents of Jerusalem to do was build up the wall at their own home. And the gates of the city, of course, refers to the leadership of the city. And where we had people doing that, we actually did very well. So there's several counties, Orange County, for example, in the last uh, e-blast, we sent out a copy of, of those candidates in Orange County. And we're talking, as you mentioned, about city council and school board and supervisors, that more than two-thirds of the pro-life candidates won their offices. In San Joaquin County, very similar result. We have mayors in San Joaquin, the mayor of Stockton. Kevin Lincoln, very pro-life, but actually all of the towns in San Joaquin County have now pro-life mayors. 
and many city council members that will be supporting them. Isn't that amazing? City of Santa Maria. Yeah. City of Santa Maria now, the entire city council is pro-life. And so this happens when you get involved locally. I want to listeners, I'll be honest with you, the Bay Area has been weaker. And part of it is that a lot of Christians don't realize the principles of Nehemiah, but they apply to us now. You have to care enough now where you are, where you live. And so this opportunity will come back. It's the one thing that's guaranteed is that elections are going to come every two years, and we need people willing to stand, and particularly school boards. If you don't see what's happening in our schools, and even if your children are not, involved in that local school, you're still paying for those schools. Yeah, we just spent uh, the last half hour talking about the the challenges related to education and the critical difference that school choice can make if we can only move the country in that direction. Point well made. Yes, and we really have to be involved. So obviously, we personally homeschooled, but I have many friends that ran for school board and supported them. We still need to be that salt and light for our community. Make sure the right kind of things are taught. There's some really bad stuff being taught in our schools. And if no one is resisting that, then it just sails through. And you're talking about destroying young lives. So the, the content of schools, you can have an impact on it in your local community. So there's quite a few races. And you mentioned on the federal level, we actually did fairly well in California. We picked up one, two, three four seats that Nancy Pelosi wanted to have. And we picked them up with pro-life congressional candidates. We protected um, Devin Nunez, and many know that Devin Nunez was was targeted with multiple millions of dollars because he he's a whistleblower in what's been going on back in the in DC and kind of quiet secret stuff in the deeper state, the FBI and the different things that were targeting the president, Devin Unions, brought all those facts to the light, and yet he retained his seat. David Valadeo, adjacent to that, he won back his seat. So even on the congressional level, we did much better than some expected. And speaking of, of San Francisco, that would be Mrs. Pelosi, and yes, she's still there, but her power actually has been trimmed quite a bit. She expected to pick up 20 Quite the opposite happened, and many of the individuals that, that are going to, I know some of these people personally, Michelle Fishbach of Minnesota, and many others are pro-life women who have been involved locally in the pro-life movement in their states. And it's very exciting that we actually, despite what the major media is trying to get into your head, things are happening. Don't quit. Get involved locally. If you do want to be involved locally, I recommend you go to CaliforniaProLife.org, all spelled out, no hyphens, because that's what we're there for, is to encourage you to how to understand what the life issue is and how to impact your community with that message of life. And it's important, I think, too, for folks to be reminded that this is not just a once-every-two-years issue. This is something that we need to be engaged in month in and month out, year in and year out, because it is that significant of a battle. <laughs> Pardon me, of a battle. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, I want to remind you as you're thinking about your end of year giving and planning going into 2021, keep in mind the great work done by the California Pro Life Council and that they depend on all of us to not only stand with them, but to support them financially as well. Information available on the web at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. 
lifematters.org and check out Life Matters. It does indeed. Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Hosted by our dear friend Brian Johnston right here on AM 1100 KFAX. Six o'clock. We're going to pivot to traffic. <laughs> 